Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode. How unions are meeting the challenge of organising and servicing freelancers and the self-employed. Welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and in this episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into the relationship between unions and the self-employed or freelancer community. This is a big and growing deal. Latest figures show that around 5 million people are self-employed in the UK. That's one in six of the workforce, an increase of over 50% since 2000. But unions traditionally work best for employees, not freelancers or the self-employed. All that's changing. There's a growing appetite amongst those 5 million for a collective voice, fueled partly by things like the original coronavirus employment protection schemes and the replacement just recently announced, leaving out large numbers of freelancers as if they were a forgotten and unimportant group. We'll hear from experts in the field, just as you'd expect from a union's Jews show. We've got Pam Morton, National Freelance Organiser for the National Union of Journalists, Paul Evans, Assistant National Officer at Bechtu, Kate Dearden, Head of Policy and Research from Community, and Kat Molesworth and Nicole Ockran, founders of the Creator Union. Is unionisation of the self-employed really within our reach, or is it just a pipe dream? Let's find out. So, unionisation of the self-employed, where to start? Well, the self-employed come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, as it were, from those bogusly self-employed, having all of the obligations but none of the rights of employees, to those shunted out of employment by outsourcing, to the genuinely freelance workers who are an established part of some industrial sectors. The numbers have grown and are set to keep on growing. This is a sector that can't be ignored however they get into the self-employed category. One sector where freelancers are an important and established part of the landscape is journalism. National freelance organiser Pam Morton explains the challenge and how the NUJ seeks to meet it. Within freelance, you've got so many different ways of working. So you would have someone who might be doing a short-term contract, who's in a, in a workplace. You have other people who are often referred to as casuals, who maybe do one day a week, but on a regular basis for someone. The vast majority of our members work from home. So it is a, it's an issue about getting to them. We could we can try and get to individuals who work in the workplace if we have a chapel there or if we have have um, reps but we have to to look at how we reach out to individuals who are working from home and don't have any other contact with with anyone else who might be within the NUJ it might be that they just sort of you know just get on with their work pitching stories to a commissioning editor and that's the interaction that they have with them. So we, we have to look at that. I think that's a that's a big challenge. I mean, I think 
there are sort of probably problems with a small union like the NUJ. I mean, we've got two organisers who deal with freelance members. We also deal with Wales and we're often firefighting and it's very difficult to sort of create the time that you need to to actually recruit. And I'm aware that other bigger unions have actual designated recruitment organisers or officers who who probably like doing it. It's it's a skill as well. It's it's not a skill that everyone has. Yes, organising is a particular is a particular skill, but other unions who have organisers don't operate in the same very difficult marketplace, as it were, that the NUJ does. And also, as far as I'm aware, the NUJ is fairly unique. Well, it can't be fairly unique. I, mean, I think the NUJ is unique in terms of having freelancers as part of a national officer's title or, or as part of a branch title, and the freelancer's branch, for example, which I think is one of the largest in, in your union. So is it really then a, a question of getting the communications right and focusing on those basic issues such as how to pitch more effectively, how, many, how much should you get per word that gets commissioned? Are those the sort of bedrocks of the organising strategy that you need to employ? I think that people join because they they see a campaign and it's and it's something that resonates with them. I mean, yeah, you're right. At London Freelance Branch is, is the biggest branch. We focused on on some campaigning and advertising. I think we have to do that. Being a smaller union, we are unique. I think even when you talk to Bet, to a lot of their members work in a, in a different way again from from how the NUJ members work. If it, if that is the normality then what the covid crisis must have done is must have been tremendously challenging for for the nuj and, and for back to as well i guess given that where you're starting is is kind of so so changeable and so unstable how how, how has the nuj been able to cope with covid i suppose if, if, if any if any issue was right for campaigning how to stay safe during covid is right at the start we were getting a lot of freelancers who were saying particularly in sports saying all sports has been cancelled my employer is saying that the the shifts after next week are are all cancelled PAYE freelancers which is another sort of grouping of of those who've fallen with between the cracks in terms of the ongoing campaign to make sure that the coronavirus protections that have been introduced by the government do affect everyone and looks at the cracks are filled in uh, in as it were as the crisis continues, what is next on the agenda in terms of making sure that your members are, are both safe and have the maximum chance of gainful employment? We are still campaigning on on the sort of the, the people who are falling with, between the, the cracks. I think it, I think it's acknowledged by everyone that the landscape has completely changed now. I mean, what we are seeing now is employers, in, in respect of employees, they're now you know, getting rid of them now, making people redundant in, in you know, mass swathes of, of individuals. And I think those people may initially go freelance, but I think the, the picture has changed and it has to be part of the, the wider campaigning that we're doing on the news recovery plan. There's some proposals for the medium term and, and longer term about the industry surviving think what will happen is that these companies will get rid of a lot of employees and then realise that they actually can't function mm-hmm. without people working for them. I mean, at the same time, 
you know, we're getting quite a lot of members who have, are wanting us to look at contracts and it's just got to, to come back, really, that work. But I don't think that it will come back in, in the way that it that it that it has been up to now, which which obviously makes it extremely difficult. But does in an ironic way, is that a fillip, if you like, to people joining the union, a, a greater incentive of people joining the union and becoming aware of the value of being able to work as part of a collective? Our membership figures are, are going up. An average number of members joining is now two hundred and two per month, and before it was one hundred and thirty seven per month. Yeah. And, you know, compared to where we we were at even two years ago, every year, our, our the NUJ's financial year, it runs from the 1st of October to 30th of September. We're already past what we were for the last couple of years at the end of May. And we've, we've still got to go until September. You know, people are thinking, yes, I must I sort of must join a collective and, and, and have some protection. We often get a lot of queries from from non-members who have found their way to the NUJ and then they write, they've got a particular problem that's going on <laughs> with them and they write and they ask for our help. And it does, it does always strike me how sort of little there can be in terms of knowledge about how trade union works. And they, they seem to sort of think that the NUJ is there to provide advice, free advice, in the way that, you know, the Citizens Advice Bureau is. But I think, I mean, another thing you mentioned, London Freelance Branch, and I mean, they've been great in terms of going and speaking to students on on courses, journalism courses. Now, you know, there there will be people that say, well, they're they're just students and they're not working journalists. But actually... I think you need to start then because there isn't that culture of of joining a trade union. And if you look at our surveys, the data on on who our members are, our freelance members, there's there's no diversity whatsoever. It's it's freelance membership is 95% white, mostly male, and mostly in their 50s. So we need to start somewhere. We need to start younger, really, and, and getting that message about trade unions and, and what we do and, and joining. And they're doing a great job on that. I think the way people have worked, the way companies insist on sort of increased casualization has left people very vulnerable. They're vulnerable anyway because they don't have employment rights unless you can establish that they've worked as a de facto employee. But it's a real mess. You know, the, the business of the tax, they insist on people being paid PAYE, those people are now not haven't been eligible for any financial support. They insist on on rotten contracts, on <laughs> unfair terms, and we need now. Now is the time we go with our message of of what we want things things to change. Really. So. There's clearly an appetite and a need here for the self-employed to have a collective voice in the form of a union. But if we look at sectors where this kind of working arrangement is not so well established, what then does the offer look like? Community union have been increasingly preoccupied by this. Here's Kate Dearden. So community, we're a really proud champion of the 5 million self-employed community across the UK um, and, you know, ever-growing ever-growing community and section of the UK workforce. And what's been really interesting throughout the pandemic for us in particular is the sort of increase in appetite to find a home, to find a, a space for the self-employed to have a collective voice, to speak together on issues that matter to all of them within self-employment. 
And then if you, you sort of dig deeper into that, the section, the different sectors within self-employment are so vast and so diverse that there's so many different issues facing those individual workers. But as a whole, being self-employed, they face issues sort of collectively. And we've found that for those individuals, the pandemic has, has shown the sort of exacerbated inequalities that those workers face. And they are not only looking for help with those solutions, but actually want to drive change through a wider body, through a collective voice. And a trade union for them is a perfect sort of solution for that. And what they're really excited, excited to see that unions are, are reaching out to these workers now. So, so, so the offerer are, are, are identifying the things that the self-employed have in common, but there's also kind of an individual support function. And it, it sounds to me that, that actually it's the two together that make the package inviting and, and engaging. Would, would that be an accurate assessment? Absolutely, absolutely. I think what what recruits a lot of self-employed workers is that collective voice and that collectivism that trade unions champion and, and what we're known best for. But also individual benefits that we as a trade union can provide. So for example, we we help with chasing late payments um, for self-employed and freelance workers. So, so we help them write a letter or if it's a call directly from the trade union to the client, whatever that member feels will best help them in their situation and will best resolve and get money back into their pockets for late payments we also help them with training so it's flexible online training to help develop their business skills for example or with sort of their lifestyle and so looking at how they can do courses in mental health well-being and other courses that we offer to help them in their work and home life in addition to that we help with sort of self-assessment tax returns and for a lot of self-employed workers it can be very daunting and quite a stressful thing to do especially if you're newly self-employed and haven't done it before and so we help sort of navigate the member through that process and we're also teaming up with with an external organization to help them do that better and we're constantly looking at different ways we can better support the self-employed community and different ways we can offer provide offerings as a trade union to those workers so we're constantly sort of adapting and updating our offer to make it best suited to the self-employed and help them in their work and home life. As you've developed this package and this, you've ploughed this furrow, okay, have there been any particular surprises, either, either good or, or bad, about things that have worked that you didn't think would work, things that have bombed that you thought would, would be a big hit? Yes, so we, we were focused about a year and a bit ago on co-working spaces for self-employed and wanting to, get, to give, as part of the, the community membership for self-employed workers, a co-working space as part of their package. And we were finding not many members were actually taking that opportunity up. And we also had sort of a factoring, a factoring service, which was sort of a third party service to help you with your late payments. And we were also finding that actually not, not a lot of members were using that service too. So that's why we've updated our offer to have them sort of more direct conversation and representation with those workers. So it's, it's directly community now that helps with late payments, for example. Um, and with the co-working spaces, it's something that we're going to sort of keep looking at and keep seeing how we can make that work for those members. But it didn't work at the time. But I think there's, you know, it's such a new thing to represent self-employed workers in the wider economy. Obviously, there's brilliant trade unions representing those in the creative industries and beyond. But in the wider economy, I think it is so new. So we're trying different things, what can work, how can we best help them. Some things don't work and some things do. So, you know, especially throughout the pandemic, our campaigning and policy voice has been really beneficial for members who have really appreciated those efforts, particularly with the income support payments for self-employed you know newly self-employed people who have missed out on the payments we've been campaigning for them from day one throughout this pandemic and they've really appreciated that work and felt like you know they are part of something bigger and their voices are being heard so that work alongside the individual the individual work and support we can provide I think is really beneficial for members and hopefully recruit more and more self-employed and freelance workers the trade union movement. 
I mean, in terms of the way things develop, it, it, this is almost a, a virtuous circle, isn't it? If, if if members are satisfied with the service they're receiving, they're more, more likely to stay members and become engaged and, and and get more involved. It seems to me that a lot of the the, the support and benefit services that, that are being provided, it wouldn't be out of place in a kind of employee assistance program that would be run by a big multinational corporation. But of course, presumably community members can access these services at, at a fraction of the cost that they'd have to pay if they were they were trying to do so commercially. Yes, absolutely. And as part of our wider offer, we team up with benefits and services across all different parts of our economy to offer cheaper rates for our members as being part of the union. And we want them to get back as much as they can that they pay in their contributions. And, and that's the best way we think we can work. For example, like we have a, a local community fund that a lot of our members can put a bid into to support more initiatives in local communities. And that's why we're really proud to be called community and, and part of our ethos. Um, and we've been also holding some sort of drop-in sessions for our self-employed members to say, you know, what what services could help you more? What, what would you like to see the union offer? And they've been really beneficial in, in getting that feedback to make sure that we are not only competitive, but we are still sort of relevant for those workers. The appetite for an assertive, organised, collective voice is not just fuelled by economics. There are also issues of diversity. Here's Paul Evans. Assistant National Officer of BEC2. An industry that has a lot of people that are prepared to work for free or, you know, on a voluntary basis, you know, or be, or be, because they they come, they have the sort of safety net underneath them that allows them to do it, is also an industry that is socially exclusive. You don't get people from low-income backgrounds yeah. succeeding in, in trades and crafts where there are a lot of volunteers, where people are relying on the bank of mum and dad or where, where some of the people who are working in it are maybe retired or, or, or you know, sort of comfortable, that sort of thing, that, that's an industry that doesn't have, it doesn't have people from minority backgrounds. It doesn't have people from uh, low-income backgrounds. And, and to some extent, those, those audiences need catering for and those audiences need a voice. To some extent, everyone's got a social responsibility. I think, I think people have a moral duty to do everything they can to make sure that pay at the entry level is reason, is reasonably good. Remember, there are no social exclusion problems in professional football because professional footballers get paid properly. You wouldn't look at the names and the faces on a football on a football on a, on the back of a football program and say, "No, this is this is all posh people." Uh, the, the medical profession: forty percent of doctors are from minority backgrounds because the medical profession pays quite well at the entry level. The arts, on the other hand, has a huge inclusion problem. Perhaps nothing typifies what Paul's just been talking about more than the emergence of TCU, the Creator Union, formed this year to give collective voice to influencers and creators in the digital space. Nicole Ockran and Kat Molesworth are the driving force behind the Creator Union. And they told me about the challenges they face and why unionisation was the obvious way forward. I think the reason that we desperately need a collective voice is because the old principle of divide and conquer is very much used in the industry. So there's a feeling of scarcity about around work. There's always the sense that you could be replaced with somebody else that if you don't accept poor terms, that there's 20 other, 30 other, 50 other people standing behind you to take that campaign. And there's no power for the individual in this situation and there's no ability to influence change so I think together we all have a huge amount of power and that's one of the reasons that we wanted to start a union because 
we're just sick and tired of the same tactics that were being used 15 years ago to pay less for our work being used now. Right. And, and it's one thing to have a collective voice, but it's, a, it's another thing to actually talk about a union. I mean, you could have a guild, you could have a network. You, what, what's the appeal of a union in this context? I mean, I think for me, it's definitely, it provides a level not only of security, but also a level of of access that not a lot of influencers who are considered, influencer content creators who are considered to be, I guess, I mean, you could say that they're the smaller the smaller influencers, the smaller creators in in marketing to speak, it's always the nano or the micro, for example. Um, because like Kat was saying, like we have there's a real there's a hierarchy in terms of the way that we are ranked by other people um as well as within the space. So I think for me in particular, being able to being able to contribute to a union as well as provide a space for smaller content creators and influencers to have access to resources that they wouldn't necessarily have access to um, outside of that, again, monetarily, legally, all of those things. And I'm and also I hope in future to be able to for us to be able to to lobby for lobby for changes within our industry, the industry that we've created and and worked in for, you know, over 10, 15 years now. Right. So what are, what are the particular issues and particularly are there issues of kind of intersectionality uh, that are involved here that, that means that there is a desire for some sort of collectivism to overcome the, the individual nature of the work that you do? Absolutely. Again, I think my anecdotes will always be around, you know, being a black influencer in the space. I have a lot of friends who are black content creators, black influencers who have been working in this industry again for since the beginning of time. A few of them, you know, have even created have been creators since before any of this was being monetized. And so I think for black content creators in particular, there is there is a real issue around pay, and again, a real lack of knowledge around what black content creators can and should be being paid for for their work. And particularly, we saw an influx of black content creators being asked to work for free. You know, everything after Black Lives Matter, a lot of brands and agencies were kind of scrambling to, you know, ensure that they had those that kind of content going up on their Instagram feeds, for example, which then meant that brands were kind of trying to seed product out to Black content creators. And so, you know, Kat and I have these conversations with our colleagues, like almost every day, people being, you know, messaged by brands or emailed and, you know, trying to figure out what their, and we have influencers asking us what their rate should be for certain things and, and advice again around usage fees and, and image rights and all of those things that unless you are working within the space or work, you know, have any knowledge of copyright or any knowledge of, of photography and, and all of those things, those aren't things that you get taught. And when you start this, this job, there isn't anywhere that tells you any of those things. So it's, it is like, I mean, we've all, we are a union in the sense that we we've created this space for people to be able to come to us and, and ask those questions, but we just want to be able to kind of push that message out even further. And you talked about intersectionality, Simon, and yeah. 
one thing that really strikes me is um, when I hold clinics to give people advice on pay and working terms is that systematically black creators and other creators of colour are being underpaid by vast amounts. You know, sometimes in some cases by thousands compared to their white counterparts. And they're not creating substandard work. They are creating exceptional work. They are creating exceptional value for the people who work with them. But there's a lack of opportunity. And when those opportunities come up, they are severely underpaid. And it is incredibly stark. And it's something that, you know, has really galvanized us into pushing this as a union because sometimes enough is enough and you have to take the kind of action that could be felt at a political level. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a striking thing, isn't it? That in the training and the education and uh, the courses you can do on all this sort of, sort of stuff, which of course are, are multiplying all over the place because it's a growth sector, there's this huge gap, this huge gap, which allows people to be, to, to be massively exploited. To what extent are you able to objectively state the scale of the problem or is it still on a more kind of informal anecdotal basis? I mean, that's one of the reasons we're carrying out surveys and using data analysis and gathering that information so that we are able to put forward this kind of objective fact so that it's not all just us talking about how badly we're personally paid, but that we're reaching out into communities that we wouldn't have any understanding of, but who are still in the creator space. Um, So that's really important to us to come up with actual numbers, actual facts and figures. And once we form the union and have a membership, that kind of data analysis will be something that we do regularly. Yeah, I know. I mean, I would, if you're listening to this out there in podcast land, you need to go onto the TCU's website because actually in terms of an organisation that is committed to understanding the reality, the facts of the reality of the people that are, that are involved, you, you won't find a better example. I mean, the data gathering exercise is tremendous. Nicole, in your article on the Sky News website back in July, which was a great article, really set out the, the, the stall very effectively, if I may, may, may say so. But at the beginning of the article, there's this fantastic picture, really colourful, energetic picture, but it's overwhelmingly populated by women. I mean, like over, I mean about three men in a, in, the, in a room of about 110 people. To what extent is gender one of the main drivers or one of the main issues that, that needs to be addressed in this debate? So that picture was actually taken at my conference, Blogtacular. And when we started out, we thought it was very equal. It was all pitched, not to any one group of people, but the people who came were women. And that is because largely our industry is female. So I can name all of the guys in that picture that you're talking about because both of them. <laughs> well, no, there's, there's at least five, but <laughs> I can I can name all of them because, you know, that's how few men actually come to those events. Now it's not to say that there aren't more male bloggers out there. They just potentially didn't choose to come to our events at that period in time. But it is an overwhelmingly female space. It is in corporate as well. There's like the famous saying that if men were in charge of social media there would be uh equivalent to the cfo for social media so you know we're already on the back foot there as an industry because you know when you're female-led people value the work of women less and i think that that has fed into some of the problems that we see in the way people are treated the expectation that a woman will give up an entire day to come and model and work for a fashion brand which i know happens to nicole um, for no compensation at all when everybody else in the room is being paid is very standard in this industry 
that's that's just that's that should be criminal. That should be criminal. Really, in theory, it is, wrong. isn't it? <laughs> well, actually, well, actually, actually, you're right, Cat. Yeah, yeah. In theory, I mean... it is. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> in theory, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and yeah, and exactly that. And I think it is the expectation that, especially, you know, I can only speak to. Oh, I mean, I can speak to other areas as well, but it is, you know, fashion and beauty in particular fall foul of this all the time. You know, even some lifestyle brands, you know, here and there, but the expectation is that we are just, you know, having to be deferential to their asks. And uh, the fact that we're even being asked or considered, like, means that we should kind of bend over backwards to be able to to work for that kind of, or <laughs> work, I'm saying in air quotes, for that kind of opportunity. And I'm very intrigued to know what's happening to the men in this space and, and how they're being treated because I can't imagine the same asks. I, I just can't imagine the asks being the exact same, but, you know, I'm willing to be proved wrong. <laughs> if we if we roll forward a little bit, I mean, what, what are your kind of your aspirations for the, the kind of medium term for the TCU? You, we've touched on this earlier. I'm I I look forward to the day that we're able to kind of lobby Parliament and and again uh, and sort of actively work with you know the likes of the SA, the CMA in terms of the regulations around influencers and and disclosure and all of those things and and, and as well uh, uh, in terms of payments and not only fair pay but payment on time. I mean if all of the freelancers in this country could get together and lobby for something like that, I think that would be a, a game changer because uh, honestly, it's a, it's, it's a daily struggle, especially now in the times of, of COVID. Like it's just something that has just been just making me so angry uh, every day that we are still having to have these conversations with people actively asking them to pay us and pay us on time is just beyond exhausting. Yeah. I think one of our other big ambitions, certainly for the medium, the short medium term, is to work with industry to sign them up to a code of practice, to work with them to have them accredited so that influencers and creators can look at a company and see that they are signed up to a set of values and a set of practices which include paying people on time and which include setting fair hourly rates and using contracts that we've worked on so that they can look to that as a sign of quality and they can be reassured that working with that company is going to be a good and enjoyable experience for them and if it's not that they have us backing them up. TCU operates mostly in a visual space. Closer to home, podcasters are also facing similar issues. The podcasting sector continues to see exponential growth, not just of podcasts themselves, but also of the numbers of people working on them. There are already some impressive initiatives to bring this community together. Lily Ames set up UCAN, the UK Audio Network, and leading podcaster Sarah Miles champions inclusivity with her Rise and Shine project. But given the crossover between radio and podcasting, it's not surprising to find a fair smattering of Bet2 members here. So, is that a platform for unionisation? Paul Evans again. Well, you know, if, if people who work in podcasting want to stick together and want to, want to have a, a bunch of things that they believe that they can achieve by sticking together, that's when we, that's when we can be helpful. That's when we can be useful because we can, we can help with a framework we're quite good at, you know, at democratic structures for freelancers. How do you get a bunch of people 
who broadly have, you know, have a, a series of views. How do you get them in a room and get them to agree with each other yeah. and turn it into an action that they can something that, that they can turn into something that's actionable? That, that's that's what we can help with. A union won't usually do very much for you. What a union will do is it'll help you do an awful lot for each other. Mm. And that's the that, that that that's the message I'd, I'd say to people that really, if there is an if, I mean, if people who work in podcasts don't believe that they can achieve anything by acting in concert, acting together, all adopting the same position, or you know, having a good conversation, agreeing a position, and then adopting it and, and doing something on it, if if you believe that that's not possible then I don't think that there would be any point in unionising people or, or doing any collective action for people who work in podcasting. If you think that there is scope to um, establish working norms, for instance, so establish, uh, for instance, it could just be payment practices. It could be just, you know, the, the way that employers pay you or the way that working hours, uh, you know, length of length of the day, what, what, what is paid and what is unpaid. I did work with photographers years ago. When photographers were saying, you know, people were saying, well, I only had you for an hour. So why am I, pay-? you know, I mean, I'd only pay a plumber uh, £15 an hour. And the photographers are going, well, no, no, what you're paying is you're paying for someone who's got loads of expertise that I had to acquire expensively. I've got loads of kit, which I had to acquire expensively. I'm going to do loads of prep before I turn up. I'm going to do loads of work, post-work after I've done the job, you know, that sort of thing. So helping people to communicate what the what the, the totality of the service is and sometimes the only way to do that is to do that collectively because remember you, you've got but freelancers are also very competitive amongst themselves because because you're always going to come up with that problem that freelancers are in competition with each other and what is it what, what is the sphere that the freelance that freelancers will say okay we're, we're, we're not going to compete on this and in particular I think people should always find ways of avoiding competing in a way that results in a race to the bottom. You know, if, if you've got competition that, 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 that drives up excellence and that drives up the, the rates of pay, so, you know, you're looking at... Because freelancers always love their work. You know, if, if you if, whenever as a union we've ever said to people, actually, we want to do... Will da- will da- is likely to damage the industry. And they'll immediately say, no, they won't, they won't be interested in that. So I think you have to sort of get people to talk about the guild issue as well. What 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 are the things that are stopping investment in capital equipment, for instance, in, in investment in capital infrastructure, investment in training, you know, the development of all relevant skills? What's getting in the way of that? Because a race to the bottom stops that, and people might be prepared to say, okay, we'll suspend hostilities with each other to work on that, so so that we can just compete in quality. And if if you were if you were to to do a bit of crystal ball gazing, say looking two or three years down the track, given what we've discussed about the nature of the podcasting sector and the things that can encourage people to come together, even though they might be in competition with, with, with each other, what would you regard as as kind of positive signs in terms of working conditions in in the podcasting sector? If we were hypothecating what's going to happen over the next two to three years, I think, for instance, you'd have a norm on what paid work is. Does paid work start at the moment that the microphone gets switched on and the broadcast light, so to speak, goes on? So, for instance, if you do a programme that lasts an hour, do you get paid for an hour? Or do you get paid, you know, is the norm that you you have a, an agreed period of prep 
and, and, a, and a group period of, of you know, posts, uh, whatever you'd call a bit of work you do at the end. So I think you'd have that norm. So that if someone, if, if you're being paid by a company that, that's hiring you as a freelancer, that, you know, what they're doing is they're buying that package. I think that's something that podcasters could agree on. It, and I think the second thing is that having the idea of a professional rate, because, again, you'll have the problem, you know, 20 years ago, I was working in the web development industry. And our big problem was everybody had a nephew well, yeah, my, my nephews, he's great yeah. with computers. He'll build, he'll build, <laughs> yes. he'll, yeah. Uh, nephew, he, he or she, they'll, 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 they'll build a website. My nephew or my niece will build a website for me. Why, why do I need to pay you? And we always have to say, well, yes, you, def- you definitely can get the sort of web- – we've seen the sort of websites that teenagers put together, and they're not you know, they're not the things you can have as your corporate website. They, they always used to have flashing GIFs and flashing uniforms and things like that. Um, so – sort of establish the idea that there is a professional there are a set of professional standards um so i think if you can establish norm if you can get people together to establish the idea of norms but also establish the idea of professional rates that there is a difference between a professional and an amateur and the way to tell a professional is at least in part by looking at how much they get paid so what does all this tell us what can we learn from all this four things i think first of all there is an economic case almost an economic imperative that drives the self-employed drives them towards collective voice and unionization this is epitomized by the coronavirus job retention scheme the self-employed scheme the successor to both those schemes that has just been agreed and is going to roll out from november for for a six-month period the cracks that were evident in the original scheme, which caused lots of self-employed people to, to fall through them, not be covered, exposing the weakness and inadequacy of universal credit payments. Uh, those cracks have not been filled in. It's the same story and therefore the same argument. And it's only by working collectively through unions like Beck2, Prospect, NUJ and the others that there's any chance of getting the political traction to really make a difference on that that's the first thing so the second thing is that actually as we've heard there are some particularly striking egregious you might say demographic issues that drive people towards a collective voice and towards unionization particularly when it comes to the way in which women and people of color seem to be systematically being mistreated and exploited and the survey work that the Creator Union are in the middle of carrying out will be extraordinarily powerful in terms of bringing that injustice to light. Third thing is that there are many players and actors in this sector, TCU, NUJ, Beck2, that's all in the creative space, and that's fine because there are many more people working in that sector than there are trade unionists. There's room for everyone to play their role and to grow and to contribute to the campaign for independent representation and collective voice and collective bargaining as well. And then finally, I reflect that there is a difference of approach between those unions who have been involved in the long term representing freelancers and the self-employed for whom that way of working predates the sharp increase over the last 20 years. It's part of just how 
that particular sector has been structured and resourced. And those like community who see that there is now a spread of self-employment and freelance work across many industrial sectors and that there is a generalised need for a trade union offer that appeals to people in that situation. It's worth pointing out, or rather it's worth never forgetting, that actually amongst the 5 million or so self-employed, estimates suggest that as many as 2 million are on poverty pay. So where does that leave us? What is the best way forward? Well, the Virtual Trade Union Congress held recently resolved to campaign for a new deal for freelancers with the aim of ensuring better workers' rights and more security at work. To ensure that high-quality self-employment is an integral part of any plan to build back better after the pandemic and to examine best practice and new ideas for organising and providing a voice for self-employed workers. And in terms of taking that agenda forward, the TUC is going to convene a working group of affiliated unions to meet regularly to coordinate campaigning and recruitment of self-employed workers and will lobby the government to essentially do the same by setting up a task force to look at the ways that the self-employed can be better supported and the extension of sick pay to the self-employed, shared parental leave and pay. Well, that's just about it for this episode. If you want to find out more, head over to makesyouthink.com for the companion blog post containing all the links and signposting you'll need. You might also like the forthcoming Unions 21 webinar on organising the self-employed, which you can sign up for at unions21.org.uk forward slash events. Thanks to Pam and to Kat and to Nicole and to Paul and to Kate, but most of all, thanks to you for listening and for your company during this episode. Please join the conversation you can email us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. Tweet us at Jews Union. Whether it's on this or any other issue, we'd love your views. And thanks to all of you who have made contact so far to say how much you like the show. Please do rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice. It really does make a difference. Check out the 70 or so trade union podcasts that you can access through the Labour Radio Podcast Network. There's something there for all tastes and appetites. We'll be back next week when I am delighted to welcome onto the show Roseanne Foyer, General Secretary of the Scottish TUC. We'll be chatting about organising, about the Better Than Zero campaign, working with the Scottish Government and the unavoidable question of independence or not. Join me next time for a conversation you won't forget. Whatever you're doing, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you around. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.